Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to Psalm 8. We're continuing our series through the Psalms, so grab your Bible and turn to the 8th Psalm. We're in book 1 of the Psalter, and um, I'll read all 9 verses, and then we'll pray. Psalm 8. If you're new to the Bible... The eight is the big number. That's usually the chapter number, but in the Psalms, it's not a chapter. It's the eighth Psalm, and then the verse numbers are the smaller numbers as we look at the nine verses here of Psalm 8. I hope you're there. Let's look at Psalm 8, and let me read the word of God to you. For the choir director on the Gittith, a Psalm of David. Yahweh our Lord, how majestic or how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the wild animals or the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Yahweh our Lord, how magnificent is your name, throughout the earth. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Psalm 8, and we thank you that we can meditate on it here through video um, with some of our church family and friends. We thank you, Lord, even for the few church members who are here in the auditorium with us as we get to meditate on Psalm 8. Lord, speak to us. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Visit us this Lord's Day as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead this Sunday, as we do every Sunday. We pray that that resurrection power would reside in us right now and that we would experience your Holy Spirit working in us through the word. So broaden our perspective, open our eyes, soften our hearts, lift us up in praise because we need you and we want you and you are worthy of all of our praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's what Christian, that's the heartbeat of us as Christians. We want to praise the Lord. That's what we love to do. That's what we want to do. We want God's name to be praised because we think God is worthy of our praise. We want to praise God with our words. We want to praise God with our actions. We want to praise God with our hearts. We want to praise God with our lives. But we are fallen sinners. Our, our hearts are clipped, so to speak. We're handicapped in many ways. We have disabilities and hindrances to our worship because of our human limitation, because of our sin, and because of our small-mindedness. So sometimes our praise of God gets apathetic. It, it's partial. Sometimes we partially praise God. Jesus said when he was rebuking some of the Pharisees in Matthew 15, verse 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's quoting from Isaiah, who also rebuked his people in his day of praising God with their lips, but their hearts being far from God. Apathy, indifference, cold-heartedness. Which, what, what Christian do you know who hasn't struggled with those things at some point in their lives? We all have spiritual highs, but to have a high means that there are times when you're not high and you're not overwhelmed with the love of God and bursting forth with praise. And so we get apathetic. And yet we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with all, not part, but all of it. And so the more we think about it, the scarier it gets that we could actually be hypocritical for long periods and stretches of our lives. I'm scared to be a hypocrite, honoring God with my lips only, especially as a pastor who preaches God's word regularly, but that should be a fear for all of us. David here in Psalm 8 gives us help for our apathy, gives us help for our half-heartedness, gives us help for the cold-heartedness in our lives. 
He helps us by pondering the great purpose of God in creation. David's goal here is to praise God in such a way that the readers and singers also stand in awe of God's greatness. Look at verse 1 and verse 9 with me just to see that the main goal here is very clear because it's repeated twice, right? In verse 1 it says, Lord or Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, that's the personal name of God, Yahweh our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. And then uh, verse 9, Yahweh our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. It's clear. David is in awe of the magnificence of God's name. He's amazed. And he praises God in, a, in an overwhelmed way. And he hopes that as people sing this psalm, that they too would be caught up in this, um, in this um, joy and gladness and jubilance of praise of who God is. So here's the main goal and the main idea, really, of this psalm. Praise God's magnificent name. He is amazing. Praise God's magnificent name. God is amazing. So we want to praise God's magnificence. And usually in a psalm of praise, this is a psalm of praise. It's also known as a, it's a hymn of praise. It's also a hymn of creation as a particular type of hymn of praise. But usually in psalms of praise, there's a general pattern of the praise to God, the reasons why you praise God, and then a call to praise at the end. And so you have the, the, the praise of God and the call to praise. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. Verse 1 and verse 9, that's a call to praise. And then verses 2 through 8, you have the reasons why you're to praise God in that way. Okay? So um, there's three reasons here, which the third one actually births a fourth reason. But there's three reasons here in Psalm 8. And it's praise God's magnificence. Why? God conquers his enemies. God cares for you. He cares for us. And God crowns you. God crowns you. God crowns us. So let's look at these one at a time, beginning with the first one. God conquers his enemies. God conquers his enemies. And this is just verse 2. God conquers his enemies. I want you to look at verse 2 with me. Let me read it for you. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Notice here three things. I want you to notice three things about God's majestic conquering. First, notice that God establishes a stronghold. Look at verse two again. It says in the second line, you have established a stronghold. The term is, uh, it could also be translated, the ESV says, you have established strength. God establishes strength or God has established a, str a stronghold in the Greek Old Testament. It's translated, you are, they just changed the word completely and say, you have established praise. Because the idea here is that God's stronghold or God's strength is the strength of his praise, of people praising him that establishes his strength. And so God's strength or stronghold is a key element. Now, what is a stronghold? A stronghold is a fortress. It's a place in the, it's a station in the middle of a battle. So if you're trying to conquer the enemy, you establish strongholds and from there you defend that stronghold and you send the armies out to make further damage and, and win the war. So strongholds are fortresses for winning a war, for winning a battle. And so God is establishing a stronghold here, like a military fortress that would be useful in battles. Now, why does God establish this stronghold? Why does he establish a stronghold here? Is he at war? Look at verse two again. You have established a stronghold, why? On account of your adversaries. On account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. So why has God established a stronghold? Because he has enemies, he has adversaries. And so what does he wanna do? What's his purpose of establishing a stronghold? In order to silence the enemy and the avenger. To still the enemy is another translation. Is that what your ESV says? To still the enemy and the avenger? Another translation might be to stop or to cease them, to end them. God establishes a stronghold on account of his adversaries, in order to cease, to stop, to still, to end the enemy and the avenger. 
So God conquers his enemies through his stronghold. But how does God establish this strategically effective stronghold? So he's establishing a stronghold to conquer his enemy, to silence his enemy, to stop the avenger, to end them. But how? How does he establish this strategically effective stronghold? Or another way of saying it is, from where does God establish this stronghold? We didn't read all of verse 2, not carefully. So go to the beginning of verse 2. Where does God establish this stronghold? Or from where does God establish this stronghold? How does he do it? Look at verse 2. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold. So where does this stronghold come from? From the mouths of of who? From the mouths of who? Infants and nursing babies. Babies that are still being breastfed. God establishes his stronghold, this stronghold, to defeat the enemy and the avenger from the mouths of infants and babies still nursing. Now look at verse 1 again. It says, you have covered the heavens with your majesty. There's this magnificence of the majesty of God. God has covered the skies with his majesty. Clouds, you get bright, you get um, bright blue skies, you get gray skies at times. Then at night, and you have the big sun that you, you know, it's lighting up our whole sky. And then at night, you have the moon and stars. Sometimes you can see planets. Some of our members bring a telescope out every so often when we do our, um, our, um, with our trunk or treat in October. And people get to see Saturn and Mars and other planets. And all of that declares that God is king. It's the majesty of God, that God is so great that really no enemy has a chance. And yet, with that true, with that, with the bigness and greatness of God, God establishes the stronghold that's going to defeat the enemy through who? The mouths of babies. This great, powerful God who creates a universe with a word uses babies, the mouths of babies, to defeat his enemy. Now, that is the weakest and most vulnerable and most non threatening weapon you can use to scare the enemy, the mouths of babies. Now, we are in an empty auditorium, mostly empty. There's a few of us here. We are not hearing the typical mouths of babies that we hear when we'd gather here on a Sunday during a service. And some of you might fear the mouths of babies because it might annoy you or something like that, but this is not the fear that's being spoken of here. This is a fear that God is going to use the mouths of babies, the crying of babies, the sounds that come out of babies' mouths to defeat his enemies. Now, I told you that it's not just translated strength or stronghold, but the Greek Old Testament translates it as praise. I'm not sure why they do that exactly, Um, though it's easier to understand praise coming from the mouths of babies than a stronghold coming from the mouths of babies. But babies still don't really articulate self-conscious praise, right? I mean, when the babies are making noise here in our auditorium, now, like young babies, it was just one of my daughter's birthdays recently, and we're watching old videos of, of her like singing with a little toy microphone and she's saying things like God is so powerful, you know, and um, so she's praising God. She kind of knows what that means a little bit, but not really. But this is not talking about those types of babies, babies that are, you know, a year and a half, two years old. This is talking about nursing babies, babies like Shiloh or, you know, the, the nursing babies in our church. They don't praise God self-consciously. They're not saying God is powerful. God is good. They don't say those types of things. So what is David talking about here? Maybe their praise is more like the way that the sun and the moon and the stars declare the heavens. uh, You know, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. So maybe just by their very existence, the sun and the moon and the stars are pointing to God's praise in the same way that babies crying and making noise just by their very existence are praising God's name. But I think it's a little bit more than that. Go to Matthew 21, verse 16. Turn to Matthew 21. Keep your finger in Psalm 8. Go to Matthew 21, verse 16. And I want you to see, Jesus actually quotes Matthew 21, 16. So Jesus comes on a donkey. This is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before he rises from the dead, the Sunday before he's crucified on that Friday on the cross. So he's coming on a donkey down the... um, down the Mount of Olives and there's crowds cheering and they got palm branches and they're throwing them on the ground. They're throwing their coats on the ground and they're saying, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna means save us. Hosanna, like praise God, but it really means save us literally. Um, Save us, son of David. 
David is the king of Israel. The son of David, David's the Messiah, and his son is going to be the Messiah who's going to eventually save the world. So they're basically calling Jesus the Messiah, and there's huge crowds praising Jesus, saying, Hosanna, son of David, as he's coming into the Temple Mount. Now, he comes down the Mount of Olives, through the valley, back up to Jerusalem, gets into the temple, and he starts kicking everybody out. He cleans the temple. You guys know that story, right? He cleanses the temple. And as he's cleansing the temple, as he's cleansing the temple, the chief priests are in charge of the temple. And so he's offending the chief priests. And so he's there at the Temple Mount, and then there's kids, it says in 2116. Look at 2116 or 2115, uh, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children, now it's children, the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Chief priests were already mad because he's kicking people out of the temple and that's their jurisdiction. And now they say children praising him as the Messiah, Hosanna to the son of David. And what's their response? They're indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? You prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. So it's not just infant nursing babies. These are children who are actually speaking. But the point is they're praising Jesus as the Messiah, the one to save. And Jesus sees this, them praising him, as a way of fulfilling, in a sense, Psalm 8, verse 2. God is establishing, so, so get this, God is establishing a stronghold to defeat the enemy by children praising Jesus as the Messiah, the one who comes to save. That's how the stronghold is established, by children praising God, praising Jesus as the Messiah who has come to save. So God uses the mouths of children to establish praise. God uses the mouth of the weak to establish a stronghold. This may even refer to the fact that God chooses to reveal himself to the weak and humble. If you go to Matthew eleven twenty-five, if you're already in Matthew, Matthew eleven twenty-five and 26, Matthew eleven twenty-five and 26, it says, Jesus said at that time after um, other cities have rejected and did not respond to Jesus's miracles and teaching, Jesus was distraught or upset that they rejected him, all these towns. And it says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the quote-unquote wise and intelligent and revealed them to who? To infants. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him. And who does the Son desire to reveal the Father to? To infants. Not the wise of this world, not the intelligent, not the mighty, not the strong, not the influential. To infants. Now here it's speaking of spiritual infants, not physical infants. Even in Matthew 18, he talks about, Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't be great in the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child. So here's a spiritual infancy, but the point is still the same. Spiritually, they're weak. They're dead. They're insignificant. They have no power to defeat God's enemies, spiritually or physically. And God chooses to use them, reveal himself to them, reveal Christ to them as the Messiah, the son of David, who would rule the world and save the world. And through their praise, God establishes a stronghold, a fortress to defeat his enemies. Through your praise, if you're a Christian, God uses the weak, insignificant, and seemingly non-threatening to take down his enemies in the war now and in the judgment to come. Imagine God conquering his enemies through physical babies. Like just imagine a, an army of babies that God takes to defend this nation or a nation. What if we had a, a hundred babies or a thousand babies or 3,000 infants, nursing infants, so they can't even walk yet. Baby, maybe even not even crawl yet. Some of them can crawl, nursing infants. So crawling and non-crawling infants, and they're there to protect a, a, a country against a military, a, an army that's trained, with military might, military technology, training, nuclear weapons. And then we send babies to defend us. That's a ridiculous picture. They are not threatening. They're not a threat to an army. And yet that's what God is saying here. He uses babies 
to defeat his enemy. That's like sending a young teenager to fight a giant soldier. That's like sending David to fight Goliath. Wait, God did send David to fight Goliath. That's what this is like. God using the weak. You know, even this whole Goliath, go back to Psalm 8. This Goliath tied, who wrote Psalm 8? It's a Psalm of who? David. And if you look at the, the superscription there, uh, it says, for the choir director on the Gittith. The Gittith, we don't know what that means exactly. There's like a few different things. Some people think it's a musical instrument. And one translation, no one has a new King James version here or King James version, but it says, on the instrument of Gath, a Psalm of David. Do you know who's from Gath? Goliath. Goliath is a champion from Gath. Could it be that David is saying that even God uses babies to defeat his enemies? God uses a young teenager like David to defeat Goliath? God uses the weak, the insignificant, those who are written off and non-threatening to defeat his enemies. God uses spiritual infants and their weak praise to defeat Satan. Notice here, back to Psalm 8, verse, verse 2, on account of your adversaries. Now, remember, we've been going through Psalms, right? So if you guys look at Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, even Psalm 2, it's all about these enemies, enemies, enemies. And who's, whose enemies are they? Not necessarily God's directly. They're whose enemies? David's enemies, right? Here, Psalm 8 has a shift. It's not talking about David's enemies at all. It's talking about God's enemies, okay? Now, in that, in the first it says adversaries, but notice when you go back to verse 2, it goes to the singular. In order to silence the enemy, and the avenger. Who is the enemy of God? Satan is. And here's the point. God uses babies, spiritual infants, the weak and the humble, to defeat Satan. Satan himself, the greatest of all evil enemies. The greatest person, the greatest person in terms of evil. God uses infants to defeat Satan. That's what Romans 12.11 says, right? I mean, Revelation 12.11. You guys know, I gotta go to Revelation at some point. Revelation 12.11 says this, they conquered the dragon on account of the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the point of death. The church, the saints conquer Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, the praise when they gospelize and they speak the words of God, the praise of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king, that he does forgive sins, that he will conquer and rule in the end, that he is coming again. When we praise God, we defeat the dragon. That's how we kill him. God uses the weak and the humble to defeat his enemies. You guys can look at 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 29 on your own for homework. But even there, God uses the foolish and the, and the weak of this world to confound the strong of this world. So brother, sister, here, praise God with your mouth. Don't just think good thoughts about God. Say it out loud. Let it get out of your mouth. Gospelize with your lips. Embrace your smallness and your seeming insignificant life and ministry. God uses you, he uses you, to establish his effective stronghold and praise to defeat the enemy. Church family, remind each other of the heavenly perspective on the value and importance of who we are and what we do as a church. We are the church of the all-powerful God and his all-powerful Messiah. We're a weak church. Churches are weak on their own, but we are the weak church of the all-powerful God. So let's remind each other of who we are in Christ. If you're not a Christian, don't write off the truth of the gospel if it comes to you as foolish at first. Maybe when we talk about a Jewish man who died and rose from the dead and he's the king of the universe and he's actually God, truly God and truly man, that might sound foolish at first. I understand that. It could sound foolish. But don't write it off right away just because it sounds foolish to you initially. It could actually be the truth. Keep asking who Jesus is. Figure out who Jesus is. There's no more important question for you if he truly is the Messiah, the son of David and the savior of the world. Children, how can I not apply this text to children, right? I mean, it says here the mouths of infants and, and nursing babies. Children, I'm talking to the, the nursing babies of our church, right? Um, even even the, the young children in our church. What am I saying to you? I'm telling you, praise Jesus as the Messiah. Praise Jesus as God and man. Don't underestimate kids. I want you kids to listen where you guys are at home. Listen. Don't underestimate what God is doing through you. 
Don't underestimate. You don't, don't even try to calculate what God is doing through you. Just praise God. Just speak the truth of God. Kids, I want you to gospelize other people. Tell them about who Jesus is. Pray out loud in your family at home. Pray out loud at the church. When we come back on Sundays and we ask people to pray, volunteer to pray. Jesus is the king. Tell people about that. Tell people to trust in him. I mean, haven't you guys here, the ones who are here, haven't you been encouraged by children in our church who say true things about God, who praise God out loud? It doesn't even encourage you in a way that when adults say it's not as encouraging in some ways. It's a special kind of strengthening that goes on in your soul when you see children praising God. Kids, I wanna encourage you. You guys are very vital to our lives. You help us know God. You help us defeat the enemy. So keep praising God. If you're discouraged, just know this. If God uses weak Christians, God uses discouraged Christians. If you're feeling like you're, you're, you just are, have no spiritual strength and you're just barely hanging on to Jesus, God uses Christians who are barely hanging on to Jesus. If you're stumbling in sin and you feel like you, you really can't break out of certain sins in your life, God uses Christians who are struggling with sins and are stumbling in their lives. Be encouraged. Praise God's magnificent name. God is amazing. Praise God's magnificence because he conquers his enemies. Let's go to the second one. The second one's gonna be a little bit shorter and then we'll go to the third one, which we'll spend, again, a chunk of time. But let's go to the second one first. So God conquers his enemies. That's one reason to praise him. A second reason to praise him is because God cares for us. Verses three and four. Verses three and four, God cares for us. Look at verse three. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. This is almost like verse two, verse one, you have covered the heavens with your majesty. Now he's actually talking about the heavens. He observes the heavens. He sees the work of God's fingers. God made the universe with his fingers, not even, you know, his hands and, you know, just his fingers, like a finger painting. That's a lot simpler. The moon and the stars which you set in place. I want you to see here that God is big and powerful and infinite and eternal. But I want you to see the infinite power of God here. That God creates a universe with his fingers. The moon, the stars. One commentator writes, what if David knew that if the Milky, Gal- Milky Way galaxy were the size of the entire continent of North America, our solar system would fit in the coffee cup. So if North America was the Milky Way galaxy, our solar system would fit in a coffee cup. And that the Milky Way is one of perhaps 100 billion such galaxies in the universe. How small are you? How big is God? We have one star in our solar system. What do we call that star? The sun, right? We have the sun in our solar system. And it's a medium or smaller sized star. Our solar system is part of the Milky Way galaxy with anywhere from 100 billion to 400 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy and maybe 100 billion planets. I read one estimate, and so that's in our Milky Way galaxy, okay? 100 billion to 400 billion, um, 100 billion to 400 billion stars. We have one in our solar system. And the Milky Way galaxy, according to one estimate, is one of two trillion galaxies in the universe. And David is just amazed that we're on this little ball Maybe David doesn't know all the, uh, the astronomy, you know. Maybe he thought it was flat. I don't know. Dave, I mean, we should be amazed that we're on this ball that's spinning around, right? Constantly rotating. And it's even as it's rotating on its own axis, it's rotating around. It's orbiting around a sun which, and a solar system that's orbiting around some other greater gravitational pull that's in a galaxy that's orbiting around in this great universe. And here you are in Bellflower, southeast LA County or wherever you're watching this morning. Here's an application. Clyde Kilby says this, at least once every, this for his own mental health, at least once every day, I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above and about me. That's good for your mental health. To just realize how small you are in this universe. And it's the work of God's fingers. Now, look at verse four. If this is how great, so David, this is just half his thought, right? When I look at this great vast universe, verse four, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him? 
with this great vast universe, this is an amazing universe, and yet God remembers small, puny, weak, finite, fleeting, insignificant humans. You, me, he remembers us. This can also be translated, what is, what is man that you take notice of him? Or that you're mindful of me? Or that you look at us? Or that you consider us? Or that, that God thinks about us? God thinks about you. He notices you. He knows who you are. He's mindful of you. He knows what you're wearing. He knows what you had for breakfast or if you didn't have breakfast. He knows what time you slept last night, what time you're up this morning. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going to think. He knows what you thought last week. He knows every detail about you because God is omniscient and God notices you. You might think that you're not noticed by people and maybe you aren't noticed by some people. I think more people notice people than they realize. But even then, the God of the universe who created this vast universe with his finger, with his fingers, notices you. And not only that, David takes it up even another notch in verse four. Not only does God remember humanity and human beings, what is a son of man that you look after him? So this takes it one step. Not, not, just, not just that God knows everything. Of course God knows everything. God's omniscient. Not, that, not, that just, not just that God knows you, but he actually looks after you. He cares about you. He's concerned for you. He favors you. The son of man here is at first, initially, it's just referring to a human being. A son of man is also a man, though we will talk about how that could actually even refer to the Messiah secondarily, but primarily just referring to a human. God looks after humans. Now, David's writing as an Israelite to Israelites. In verse one, he says, Yahweh, our God, how magnificent is your name? Yahweh, our Lord. And if it's Yahweh, it's the covenant name of God. So it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who will bless cursed sinners through the nation of Israel, okay? So he's speaking here about God taking care of or looking after humanity in one sense, but David is speaking to the covenant community because God does care for all humanity, but he favors his people. Right, And so here, it's talking not just about God's general love, but the way he looks after and cares for his covenant people, every single one of his covenant community members. So we know this, that God loves us, God cares for us. He pays attention to your pains. God pays attention to your trials. He pays attention to your concerns. He pays attention to your anxieties, your fears, your prayers. And God cares. God loves you. God loves you. God looks at you the way a parent looks at his child with compassion and care. God loves you. The covenant God never stops caring for you. He never stops engaging you. God is always, always 100% engaged with you and engaging you throughout your days. If you are in Christ, and if you, well, that's for everybody. He engages everyone. But, and if you are in Christ, this engagement that God engages you with is for your good. It's for your growth. It's for your joy. It's for your blessing in God, both now and forever. God is 100% engaged and focused on caring for you right now in every moment. You're not always aware of it. You might feel like God is distant. You might feel like God doesn't care, but that's not true. It's never true. Not even for a moment. God is 100%, if you can think about this, God is 100% focused on you. God is not like, like me or like you, where if I'm gonna look at two or three people and try to talk to them at the same time, I am divided. I can't focus 100% on anyone, but God can. God can 100% focus on you and not look, oh, well, I can't pay attention to you right now because I'm paying attention to this person. God is not limited by our limitations. Don't belittle God's ability to care and look after you as if God is just a man. God is fully focused on you. He fully cares for you. Every single moment of your life. And if you're a Christian, even before you're a Christian, God was already looking after you. And Paul tells us this, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is what? Working in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is always working in you if you're a Christian. He's never not working in you. You guys remember the story of Joseph? He was bullied by his brothers. Joseph was bullied by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. And then after he was thrown into a pit, he was crying and pleading with his brothers to let him go and they wouldn't let him go. They wanted to kill him. And then one of the brothers um, said, you know what, let's not kill him. He's our brother. That's too mean. 
Let's sell him as a slave to another country. And so they see some traders going by. They sell Joseph into slavery. And then Joseph ends up in Egypt. And in Egypt, Joseph is now under the custody and the ownership of Potiphar, one of the leaders in Egypt at the time. And God favors him there. I mean, um, the, the Potiphar, his master favors him there. And then the wife of Potiphar is so um, aroused and attracted to Joseph that she wants to sleep with him. She wants to commit sexual immorality with Joseph. And she tries day after day, finding different ways to try to wear Joseph down. And maybe his lust will take over and he'll eventually give in. At some point, I'm going to break him down and he's eventually going to give in. And Joseph doesn't give in. And then Joseph is framed for rape or attempted rape. And then Joseph is thrown in jail unjustly. And then when he's thrown in jail unjustly, he's forgotten in jail. The guys that he helps get out of jail and helps them get restored to Pharaoh, who's supposed to tell Pharaoh that he's in jail for a wrong reason, they forget about Joseph for years. So Joseph is forgotten by his brothers. He's thought of dead as his, by his dad. He's, he's betrayed by his master's wife. His master loved him, and yet he's framed. And then he's thrown in jail, and then he helps people in jail to get out and get, get the ear of Pharaoh, and then he's forgotten by them. And you know why Joseph didn't commit sexual immorality? What he said? How can I do, he, what he told uh, the wife of Potiphar, how can I do this sin? He said, your, your master, your husband, my master has given me everything. How can I do this great sin and sin against God? In other words, Joseph knew God cared for him. His brothers didn't care for him. His dad thought he was dead, so his dad couldn't care for him functionally. No one in the country cared for him. He's lost in prison. And David knew that God cared for him. What is the son of man that you would look after him? Every moment of Joseph's life, God was caring for him. So much so that Joseph even said at the end of his life, or when his dad died, he said to his brothers, you guys meant this for evil, but guess what? God meant this for, for good, to save you guys. God was watching after me because God is watching after his covenant people for the salvation of the world. God never stopped caring for Joseph. God never stopped looking out for him. God was 100% engaged in Joseph's life as well as Jacob's life and other people at the time. God was 100% engaged with Joseph every moment and so he is with you. And David is just floored. This universe is so huge. It's so vast. And what is man that you care about me? Why are, you, why are you, God, concerned about what's going on in my life every day and my concerns and my fears? Why are you 100% focused on me when there's a vast universe that you made that you would even look after me? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. God is good. Praise God's magnificent name. He's amazing. God conquers his enemy through babies. God cares for us. He cares for you, even though there's a vast universe. And lastly, thirdly, God crowns us. God crowns you. So God conquers, God cares, and God crowns. He crowns you. Look at verse five. You made him. So what is, what is man that you're that you remember him? What is the son of man that you look after him? Continuing the thought, you made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. I want to think about that. You made him a little less than God. God made us a little less than him. A little less than him. Now, there's a translation issue here. Some translations say, you made him, you made man, humanity, a little less than heavenly beings. So the Greek Old Testament will translate, you made him a little less than angels. So some take this as, God, you made humans a little less than God. Some say, God, you made humans a little less than angels. Now, whichever of those two you take, I lean towards one over the other, but it doesn't matter which way you take. It's, it's basically saying the same thing, which is two things are true. So no matter which way you take it, two things are true. Number one, humans are far greater than the rest of creation and maybe except angels if you take the angel view. But humans are infinitely more valuable than the rest of creation. 
So I killed several ants two days ago that were raiding um, some sweets that we left out overnight. And I don't feel guilty at all. I killed a bunch of them. Now, if those were humans, human babies, or just humans, and you know, oh, they, they're, they're uh, annoying me and they're kind of an inconvenience for my home, so let me just kill a bunch of humans. Kill a few humans because they're annoying me and they're, they're causing an inconvenience. That's an infinite difference, right? I mean, the value there, you don't just kill humans because they annoy you. But you could kill ants, you know, if they're raiding your house and not feel any guilt at all. Because we are, as humans, a little less than God, a little less than angels, heavenly beings. Ants are way infinitely below us in value. Animals are. So, so the point here, the first thing is that humans are far greater in value and dignity than the rest of creation. Maybe with the exception of angels, if you take the heavenly beings view. And even if you take the heavenly beings view, that God is, that humans are less than angels and God, but above the rest of creation, animals and, and, um, you know, nature. Even if you take that view, you still have to take, uh, understand this biblically, that humans will ultimately be greater than angels. We will judge them according to 1 Corinthians 6.3. Angels will not rule the world to come. The world to come will not be subjected to angels. It'll be subjected to humanity. So whether you take this as heavenly beings or not, the biblical truth is, whether from this verse or not, that humans are actually going to be above angels. Okay, so those two things are true, whichever view you take. The point here is that God made us, humans, a little less than God. Now we're infinitely less than God, not just a little. If you're just, if you're just comparing us and God, we're infinitely less than God. But if you take us, God, and the rest of creation, we're infinitely more valuable than a lot of creation. And therefore, than, than all of creation. And therefore, we're a little less than God in comparison to ants. If you take, you know, God, humans, and ants, we are way above ants that we're a little less than God in that sense. Does that make sense? So that, that's a privilege that we have as humanity. God has given man dignity and honor. And then, I'll look at verse 5 again. It says here in verse 5, God has crowned him with glory and honor. What is a crown for? What does a crown symbolize? Or maybe another way of asking the question is, who wears a crown? I want you guys to answer, even if you're watching at home. Who wears a crown? Royalty, right? A king wears a crown. A queen wears a crown. So when God crowns humanity, human beings, with glory and honor, God is crowning them as king. Humans are kings, men and women. They're kings who rule over creation. That's what verse 6 says, right? You made him ruler over the works of your hands. God made them ruler. Now, this is a commentary on Genesis 1, 26 through 28. You guys know Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's talking about the sixth day of creation. God created um, light and darkness. God created um, the, the earth of water and the skies above. And then on day three, God created, um, he created land. On day four, God created the sun, moon, and stars. On day five, God created sea animals and sky animals. On day six, God created land animals. And then God said, all that was good. And then God created humanity last as the crown of his creation and he said let us make man in our image male and female so man and woman male and female humanity is made in the image of god to rule over the rest of creation humans bear god's image humans are god's image you are reflections of god you are a reflection of god so what do we do as humans what does it mean to be made in god's image there's a lot we could say about that i'm going to keep it really short and simple here humans are reflections of god so I'm going to give you a bunch of ours. If humans are reflections of God, how do we reflect God? The main way we reflect God is by relating to God and relating to the reflections of God. That's So we have rationality, we have self-consciousness. So we have a, a special relationship to God that ants and your dog or your cat don't have with God. We relate to God in a very special way and we relate to other re, um, reflections of God in a special way. So I think that's the core of what it means to be in the image of God or the reflection of God is the way we relate to God uniquely and we relate to um, each other uniquely. And then, and then I think from that flows the way we relate to the rest of creation. So let me give you a few more R's. If we're the reflection of God, it, it means that we relate to God and to other reflections of God in a special way. But in a second R, if I can give you another R, we also reproduce. So it says be fruitful, multiply and fill the what? Fill the earth, right? So we, we, we reproduce image bearers to increase the glory of God displayed in the world. 
and then another R, we rule. Because we have a special relationship with God and other reflections of God, we reproduce and we rule as the outflow of our reflectionness, our image-bearingness, okay? So that's what we do. We are unique here. Now, this is not taken away after the fall. Human sin, Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Humans become sinners and they're cursed. Now, our image of God, our reflection of God is distorted. It is deformed and it has been derailed in our selfishness, but it's still there. As images of God, we reflect God and we relate to God uniquely as humans. So we reflect it in our reproducing and our ruling over all creation. Let me just give a short application here. Humans are all made in God's image. Humans are all reflections of God. And this informs our desire for justice. Why do we fight for justice in the world? For just justice, not just for us, but for all of society, societal righteousness. Why do we fight for that? Because it's about humans who are made in God's image. They deserve the dignity and respect and they have rights. And we fight for those rights. Those are not rights given by any government. Those are rights given by God by the very fact that they are the reflection of God. And this applies to human life, whether they are born or unborn, which is why we oppose abortion. This is true whether they are of the ethnic people group of Filipino Americans or African Americans or Hispanic Americans or not Americans at all. The different ethnic people groups. So that's why we oppose racism or ethnocentric oppression. Why do we fight for marriage? Because as image bearers, we reproduce image bearers. And so the right definition of marriage and family is important to the sustaining and the definition of what humanity is and how they, uh, how they operate as reproducers of reflections of God. So we care about human life from conception to natural death of all humans because all humans are made in God's image. Let's continue on. Look at verse six. So you made him ruler over the work of your hands and you put everything under his feet. So all things are, are under the feet of humans, God's images in this world. This was God's plan, right? God desired for the images. So what was God's plan? Why did God create you? Have you ever asked that question? Why did God create the world? Answer, big answer, for his glory. Okay, how for his glory? God made humans to bear his image so that they would reproduce and rule over this earth so that the whole earth would be covered with reflections of God who are reproducing and ruling as they have their special relationship with God relating to God in harmony and joy and love. That's the plan of God, to cover this earth. So the Garden of Eden starts in one part of the earth and, and humanity is supposed to spread that as they reproduce and work the ground until the whole earth is covered as the Garden of Eden with image bearers who relate to God and reflect God perfectly. That's what the plan was. But you guys know well, look at verses seven and eight. They're supposed to rule over the, all of the earth. Um, all sheep and oxen, as well as the wild an the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. So they're supposed to rule over all land animals, then they're supposed to rule by implication over all of the land. If they rule over sea animals, by implication, they rule over the sea. If they rule over sky animals, by implication, they rule over the sky. Everything is under the jurisdiction of humanity. We are the kings of the universe under God, crowned to rule under God. But this isn't going so well, is it? Lions can attack, cobras, mosquitoes don't submit to our rule, do they? Don't you wish mosquitoes would just submit to our rule? I wouldn't have to kill ants if they submit to our rule. I would just tell the ants, hey, stop eating that food that we left out last night, go back to your ant farm. And they would obey if they were, subjecting to, if they were subjected to me perfectly. But there's something wrong right now with the world, right? They don't attack, they attack, they rebel, they disobey. Sharks attack in the sea. The land, even the land shifts under our feet. We're in California, right? The land rebels against humanity. It doesn't serve humanity. It rebels against humanity. The water has drowned many people. The water is meant to serve people, but has drowned many people. Bacteria and viruses, which ought to be under our rule and reign, rebel against us. You guys have face masks on. Because the viruses are not submitting to us. They're under our rule. We are the kings of the universe, not viruses. And yet the coronavirus, the corona means crown, right? It, it looks like a crown. As if they are ruling over us. Certainly ruling over our methods of why we're gathering this Sunday or how we're not gathering this Sunday. So is Psalm 8 true? Is this Psalm true? Is it true that we are still image bearers? Is it true that we're still reflections of God? Is it true that creation is really under us? 
If so, why does creation rebel? And why do we still turn on each other? If we're reflections of God and you're a reflection of God and I'm a reflection of God, why are we not relating to each other with this perfect rule and reign? Why are we fighting with each other? The answer is because of our sin, right? Because we're sinners, we're selfish, we're self-centered, which forces us to ask another question. How can God give the universe, the rule of the universe, to damned, selfish sinners like us? Why would God do that? I mean, looking at us here in this room, we're all sinners. You're looking at a sinner right now. I'm looking at sinners right now. Why would God give us the rule of the universe? How can God do this? Now, David writes Psalm 8. David's a sinner. We know David's a sinner. We know David's writing the song to sinners. But David believes that for him and for his fellow humans in the covenant community with God, that they will rule, that they are rulers. How can God give this to the covenant community if the covenant community are sinners? It's not like they're better than other people. How can David believe this when evidence points against this undisputed reign? Now, we might say, well, there's a partial reign. PJ, you were able to kill the ants. That shows your reign. Or you might say, um, well, there are, you know, there are zoos. So that shows that humans have rule over them. And we do have SeaWorld. So I guess we do rule over animals of the sea. True. We do have some evidences of us ruling over the world. But it says in the verse, look at the verse again, verse 6. You put what under his feet? What did he put under humans' feet? Look at verse 6. You put what under his feet? All things or everything. Not some things, not some of the sea animals, not some of the land animals. You put everything under his feet. All sheep and oxen. Not some. All. So another, so why does David believe this? Maybe David believes this because um, God didn't obliterate. Now, here's what I think, and here's what I want you guys to understand theologically and biblically. I think another reason why David believes that Psalm 8 still applies is because David has read his Bible and he knows that God did not obliterate humanity in the Garden of Eden, even though they sinned. God let them continue to live. Not only did God let them live, God gave a promise. God gave a threat to the serpent, the enemy in the garden and said, from the seed of this woman, I'm gonna crush your head. And he let humanity live. And David knows that. So he knows that this enemy will ultimately be defeated, right? And that who's gonna defeat this enemy? The seed of who? The woman. In other words, humanity. A human is going to come and defeat the woman. I mean, not the woman, the serpent, the seed of the woman. So he's going to defeat the serpent. Now, it wasn't Cain because it wasn't Abel because Cain killed Abel and it wasn't Cain. It was through the line of who? Seth, right? And then Seth through, so Adam through Seth, the seed of the woman, God would, God would eventually conquer the enemy. So he knows that this, this conqueror is going to come, that God's plan is not jettisoned because of sin, but there's a, there's a plan of redemption that's going to happen. And David knows that. So he says, what is, he says, when it, when it says, what is man? There's a, a, a lot of different words for man in Hebrew, a few different words. One of the words is Enosh. What is Enosh that you remember him? Now you're like, who's Enosh? Anyone here know who Enosh is? I didn't know who Enosh was before I studied this. So I don't expect you to, but I'd be really impressed if you did. Enosh is the son of Seth. So he says, what is Enosh that you, are, that you remember him? Adam, Seth, Enosh, the line that's going to go to the conqueror who's going to defeat, who's going to crush the serpent's head. So what is Enosh that you are mindful of him or that you remember him? I think that's kind of alluding to the line to come. And he says, and what is the son of Adam that you remember him? So I mean, well, if, if, I'm sorry. If it's Enosh and that line, then through Seth and Enosh comes Noah and then comes Abraham. And then comes Isaac and Jacob, who is named Israel. And from Israel, not only comes Joseph, that's not the line, comes Judah. And from Judah, there's promise, a scepter, a king who's going to come and reign. And then David is from the tribe of, from what? Tri tribe of Judah. So David is in this line from Enosh and Seth to Abraham, to Jacob, to Judah, to David the king. And then David is given a promise that he will have a son from his own body who will sit on the throne forever. So David knows that through Enosh, through David, a man would come to crush the serpent. What is man? What is Enosh that you remember him? What is the son of man that you 
look after him. Now, son of man there, the word man there, son of man, is not son of Enosh, the son of Adam. And that's the name Adam, right? So the son of Adam, what is the son of Adam that you look after him? Now, if this is the son of Adam, this is, the son of Adam is going to come and reign. Or another way of saying it is the second Adam is going to come and reign. The second Adam. The second Adam would create a new humanity. And that from this new humanity, under this second Adam, would come the reign. And so God will, God crowns us through this coming person who's going to crush the serpent. And who is that son of Adam? Who is the son of Adam and the son of David who's going to come and crush the serpent? What's his name? Jesus, right? And so if you read Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, look at, turn to Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, briefly. I think I'm going to need about 10 more minutes, so just bear with me here as we try to wrap this up. But let's finish up this point and then we'll conclude. But this is so important, we've got to take time. I can't rush this. Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. Turn with me there. It says this. For God has not, verse 5, God has not subjected to angels the world to come, that we're talking about. It's actually to humanity. But somewhere, someone somewhere has testified. Now here's Hebrews quoting Psalm 8. What is man, humanity, that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. So humanity is going to have the world to come subjected under him, not angels. Okay, that's verses 6 and 7. I think he's talking about Psalm 8 in its authorial intent, not talking about Jesus, just humanity still. And then verse 8 continuing, for in subjecting everything to him, that is to humanity, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Okay, so everything will be subjected to humanity. Now here's the problem that I said, that I raised in the sermon, that is raised here in this verse. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, to humanity. So it's supposed to be subjected to man, but it's not. But, verse 9, but we do see Jesus, even though we don't see humanity and everything under humanity, we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So even though everything's not under humanity, Jesus did become lower than the angels. He did become a man, incarnation, right? The God became man, son of God, God the son became a man, lowered himself, died for sinners, and then he was crowned with glory, probably referring to the resurrection. So incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection of Christ for humanity. And what's the consequence of that in verse 10? What, what does he end up bringing? In bringing what? Many sons and daughters to what? Glory. So from his life, death, his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, Jesus brings many sons to glory. What does it say in Psalm 8? That humanity is crowned with what? What and honor? We're crowned with what? Glory and honor. And what does Jesus bring the, the sons and daughters to? Glory. He brings many sons and daughters to glory. And he calls them in Hebrews 2, brothers and sisters. So how will we rule over the universe? Well, it's because Christ, the second Adam, came. The son of Adam came. He lived the life we should have lived. He died on the cross for sinners and he rose from the dead to bring many sons and daughters to glory. So if you're not a Christian and you're listening, I have the best news in the world. And if you've paid attention for these 58 minutes, praise God. That's a long time to listen, especially if you're not a Christian. But let me just tell you, God sent Jesus to die for your sins, to live for you, to die for you and rise from the dead if you would repent from your sins and trust in Jesus because you and I are both sinners and we're both damned before God who is holy and who made us. But Christ came and tasted death for you if you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. So I'm pleading with you, turn from your sins, even now where you're watching this, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you and he will save you. He died to save you. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.27, for everyone else and for non-Christians as well, 1 Corinthians 15.27 says that um, Christ reigns now, but not everything is even under Christ's feet. Death will finally be put there. So in one sense, even Christ is waiting for that final reign, though he does reign now as well. Ephesians 1.22 says that Christ reigns now as the head of the church. But if he's the head, it says in Ephesians 1.22, we are his what? If Christ is the head, we are his? Anyone? Well, if he's the head... Keep the analogy. We're the body, right? Yeah, we're the body. And so if Christ is the head ruling over all things and we're his body, guess who reigns? We reign with Christ as his body. The church reigns with Christ as his body. We rule with him. So the point here now, going back to Psalm 8, is we humans, 
the covenant community, the church, those who are in Christ, the covenant head, the son of Adam. The point is that God's covenant community, though we are fallen and damned in our sins, Christ took the damnation for us. So now we are crowned to rule and reign over everything as God's reflections over this world. We do it now in part. We will reign in full in all in eternity, even as we exercise that rule partially now as humans and as the church, exercising the keys of the kingdom and discipling one another and our neighbors and the nations. So think about this, brothers and sisters. God's plan for this vast and amazing universe was centered on planet Earth. Wow. With the Milky Way being one of two trillion galaxies and 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way, and we have one star in our solar system, God has centered his whole attention on planet Earth and on his covenant community. God has set his attention on the human race. And God wanted, even though the human race fell, God wanted to redeem a new humanity out of this fallen human race. And he wanted to share his joy with them and partner with them in a new Eden to rule for all eternity. This is the amazing plan. And this plan is still intact, as David writes. And David is blown away. And David doesn't even understand the cross. He doesn't even understand the book of Revelation. You guys know Revelation 21 and 22. And here's, David is blown away. How can God include him in that rule? God would include you and me in ruling over the universe. And Bethany Baptist Church, God is going to use Bethany Baptist Church even now to partially rule as we exercise, exercise the keys of the kingdom. And he's going to use the members of Bethany Baptist Church to rule over the universe. Who are we, Bethany Baptist Church, that God would remember us? Who are you that he would look after you and engage you all the time as he completes the work that he has begun in you so that you would finally reign with him one day with all of us? who are in Christ in the millennium and in the new earth to come. Praise the Father's magnificent name. He is amazing. He conquers his enemies through babies. He cares for puny humanity and he crowns his people, the church, to reign through Jesus, the Messiah King. Stand in awe that God would crown you as a vice president, as a vice king. Praise God that he would share his throne and reign with you. You enjoy and exercise through faith and obedience towards him um, and in love towards your neighbor. You exercise this rule now towards your neighbors and towards one another and towards the nations as we live with gospel intentionality and biblical truth. Church family, let's remind ourselves of our destiny and our current purpose. Let's exercise the keys of the kingdom faithfully as well. Isn't God magnificent throughout all the earth, even now? There's churches and Christians all over the earth on the missionary enterprise. Now, if we take a step back, even though we know God conquers his enemies, God cares for us, he crowns us, and we ought to exercise this rule, we don't speak like babies to establish God's stronghold all the time. We're not always gospelizing and praising God. Let's go back to the beginning, right? We have half-hearted praise. We have weak praise and apathetic, cold hearts. We have sinfully been silent or ashamed to gospelize others. We use our words to tear down other reflections of God, other image bearers with gossip and slander. We, we praise God with half-hearted hearts. We have not ruled over creation well as image bearers, but we have exchanged the glory of God for the creation. Instead of ruling over creation, we worship creation. And we worship creatures, creatures despite our creator. We worship our appetites. We worship food. We worship physical pleasures. We worship other relationships that we have. And we're made to rule. And yet we submit and we, we exchange the glory of God, the creator, for created things. We are the enemies of God that deserve to be silenced, Right? I mean, God silences his enemies. He stops his enemies. He dominates his enemies with his stronghold. We deserve to be dominated. We deserve to be silenced and stilled and ended. We deserve to be crushed under the feet of the righteous one. Our heads deserve to be crushed. Not just Satan's. And yet, the Bible says about Jesus, who never failed. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was silent. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep before, silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, the Bible says. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. Though we were made to rule, we deserve to be crushed. And Christ was crushed so that you can rule, so that you will rule. 
Let's meditate on our reign with Christ. That's my final call. Let's reign. Let's meditate on the fact that you will reign with Christ. And think about your reign in light of the smallness of how small you are in this universe so that you are overwhelmed to praise God. If you don't continually think about your reign as puny as you are in light of this vast universe, here's what's going to happen. You're going to think you're bigger than you are. And you're going to lose your big purpose. You're going to think you're bigger than you are. Your purpose is going to get smaller than it is. And then your praise will be weak. But if you continually meditate on how small you are and how big God is, you will stand in awe of God. You will more effectively reflect God in your reign now. And you will feel your appropriate place in the universe. Yeah, you're infinitely smaller than God. But you are also a little less than God. You're infinitely greater than this universe because you're made to rule over this universe. Yahweh, Lord our Lord, how magnificent is your name in our church? How magnificent is your name in Los Angeles? How magnificent your name is throughout the whole earth, both now and on the new earth to come? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, our Lord, how majestic is your triune name in all the earth. Forgive us for our weak praise. Forgive us for our idolatrous praise of other things. Forgive us. We praise you. We love you. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you for Jesus who died for us, who saves us, who saved us. Help us to go forth with praise, a feeling of smallness and a feeling of bigness in all the appropriate ways. In Jesus' name, amen.